there is another spot in Kashmir where the thorns are roses to be gathered. There is no room for thorns there. Every footprint blossoms into a flower. Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza and I'm here today with Professor Sunil Sharma, who is the Professor of Persian and Comparative Literatures at Boston University. My co-host today is Dr. Navina Nakvi, who is the Singh Visiting Fellow at Yale University. Um, welcome, Navina, and welcome, Dr. Sharma. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about Professor Sharma's most recent book, Mughal Arcadia, Persian Literature in an Indian Court. This book delves into the idea of India as a specifically paradisical geography, as a place imbued with many meanings and many connotations in Persian literature, whether written in India itself or abroad, including even in the Ottoman Empire. Before we get into talking about this specific trope and the way that we know about India and Persian literature, can you tell us a little bit about the way Persian was used in the early modern world. We usually talk about Persian um, in the pre-Mughal period and the Mughal period, and I have worked on both periods, um, and uh, um, I tried to bridge some of that work here as well. Persian literature uh, began in India, in the subcontinent, in the um, 11th century, um, and um, uh, up to the 16th century or so, you know, until the Mughals came, we refer to it as pre-Mughal or Sultanate. Um, and then we have the Mughal period and the colonial period in the 18th and 19th centuries when Persian was also used. So in the long durée, it was um, a lingua franca um, for administrative purposes, uh, but as a court language uh, for communication between different um, Muslim courts across the Persianate and um, world. Um, but obviously my focus is more on the literary culture. So I, I look you know I look at um, poetry and the production of um, kind of bell lettre um, in India. Um, and the high period is um, uh, the, the uh, age of Amir Khusro in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, and then um, the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, that's the time when Persian was produced, um, I would say, in, in more of a transnational context. And, you know, um, we can start sort of thinking about what it meant to be Persianate in the Sultanate period versus the Mughal period. And there's also the term Indo-Persian, um, which, you know, we, we use these terms quite loosely. And Indo-Persian, I mean, I have used it in that way, too, as just the Persian that was produced in the subcontinent. It doesn't matter at what, you know, in which period. Um, but I've started thinking more carefully about these terms recently, Persianate, Indo-Persian. And maybe I don't have the final answer, but for my work for literary texts, I think um, I kind of define them in very specific ways. And how do you define them? For me, a Persianate, of course, we have the, you know, Marshall Hodgson definition, which is the is where I begin. Um, but I also think of sort of a Persian in a, as I mentioned, in the transnational context, so that um, uh, Persian literary production 
in Persian, so which linguistically is Persian literature, but when it's produced in multilingual societies, it's produced sort of not in the Iranian heartland, um, then it's Persianate because it's it's much more uh, in dialogue with other literary cultures and, and really sort of enmeshed in, in a larger sort of uh, history. And with Indo-Persian, um, I've started to sort of use the term um, as uh, Persian when it comes into its own in the subcontinent and is less transnational. It's a local language, um, both a vernacular, it becomes a vernacular language, but a classical one as well. It's in competition with Urdu literary culture, for instance, or Hindi literary culture in the 18th and um, 19th century or um, as early as the seven, late 17th century as well. That's really interesting. It seems that you're sort of putting forth a different idea of Indo-Persian, not just as Persian in interaction with other languages, which is actually more properly as you, you've defined it as Persianate. But uh, just to get back to what this book is about, it seems that you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Mughal Arcadia is something specific. It's not just Persianate South Asia. It is um, this, you know, how Persian is used in certain settings by certain figures in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, and it's marked by certain features that you describe in the book. Um, of course, the figure of Amir Khusro looms large over this, and, right. and he's outside that period, of course. But um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about what exactly constitutes the Mughal Arcadia, um, which is something that happens in a specific period, a specific context, and not just it's not just Persian in South Asia. Amir Khusro, of course, is um, the canonical figure for uh, Persian in India. Um, he lived in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, and what is interesting about him is that he um, uh, was part of this pre-Mughal transnational kind of readership. And and um, that's why I think we can call him Persianate, but not Indo-Persian, um, because we, you know, there wasn't that much kind of the uh, divisions by uh, local production, you know, it's uh, Indian Persian or Ottoman Persian and Safavid Persian, um, but it was sort of one world of Persian literature, and that's the world Ami Khusro inhabited. Um, and um, he also wrote poetry in the vernacular. So in some ways, he represents the, the sort of uh, an ideal figure uh, that, that is Persianate uh, in many ways. So the idea for um, uh, uh, Arcadia uh, to describe uh, Mughal literary culture in the first century um, came out of my earlier work um, on the Sher Ashub and Sher Angiz genre, um, uh, which, um, uh, as you know, celebrated um, urban cities in the Masnavi form, in narrative form. And it was um, mostly sort of praise poetry that combined descriptions of buildings, people of the bazaars, uh, city types, um, and uh, with some sort of pseudo-ethnographic uh, elements in it as well. Um, and then when I started thinking about uh, the the history of Persian literature in the early Mughal court, um, it, it uh, really struck me that it's all about place. 
because uh, Hindustan is being peddled as this sort of as a mecca, if you will, for uh, poets from the larger Iranian world. So it, um, you know, Akbar and Fezi um, in the late 16th century, they were uh, very actively recruiting um, uh, Persian poets from uh, Iran and Central Asia to create a court that rivaled the Safavids or the Ottomans in its um, literary splendor uh, and in other ways as well. And right from the beginning, you see this in painting and in history, historical texts, as well as in poetry, that um, there is an emphasis on urban spaces and on celebrating um, newly constructed um, capitals. So earlier it's Fatehpur Sikri, just like Safavid poets were praising um, in the mid-16th century the construction of um, Kazvin and then later Isfahan um, and then later you have Mughal poets celebrating Shah Jahan's new capital Shah Jahanabad um, and then provincial capitals Burhanpur um, the capital of Khandesh province uh, Ahmedabad uh, capital of Gujarat province Srinagar, which Mughal poets call Kashmir, both city and province are called Kashmir. But um, uh, what I uh, discovered was uh, sort of all roads were leading to Kashmir, um, that Kashmir uh, became the, the focus of uh, imperial activity and travel for various reasons, first as a resort in Akbar and Jahangir's time, then slowly... Um, in Shah Jahan's time with Arashiko and Jahanara um, as a center of Sufism. Um, and at the same time, as the sort of it became part of the imperial circuit, um, Kashmir became the paradise in Mughal India, the jewel in the crown. Um, it was um, for its climate because it came closest to um, uh, the, the perfect Persian garden with its cypress trees and its you know, salubrious climate, the expatriate Iranian uh, community of uh, men of letters at the Mughal court, they particularly loved Kashmir because they could escape the heat of the province, uh, of the plains and, and go to Kashmir. And many poets like um, Talib and then uh, under Jahangir and then uh, Kalim um, and uh, Qutsi Mashhadi um, they all ended up in Kashmir, kind of, um, it became a poet's colony mm -hmm. uh, where poets sort of retired to end their days and um, they were buried there. Um, so that was the apex of this Arcadia. Um, but uh, what is interesting is uh, that just as court poets like Kalim and Kutsi and Talib and others are celebrating Kashmir as the kind of the, 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 the highest achievement of uh, Mughal culture as exemplified by a space with all the monuments and the gardens there. There is among, um, for lack of a better term, Indian-born um, uh, Persian poets such as Munir who was from Lahore, uh, Fani Kashmiri, a local poet. Um, there was an awareness and a pride of place uh, for Kashmir as um, a sort of uh, part of their land, not just a construction uh, of the Mughal court that was, um, you know, these Masnavis were read uh, by Safavid poets in circles outside of India as far as 
until the Ottoman court. Um, but with, with this local kind of pride in places, then that extends to Bengal. Then Munir writes a Masnavi praising a trip to Bengal. It's an imperial trip, but he, he sort of, he just, you can see in his poem that he delights in the local topography um, and, and everything sort of, everything becomes ethnographic suddenly, you know, lists of fruits and um, of flowers and animals um, that are all local so that you have this kind of an opening up of the idea of Arcadia. The term Arcadia, of course, refers to an actual place in Greece. Um, and this was a, a place celebrated in um, poetry, ancient classical poetry, and then later in um, European poetry as an idyllic place um, and um, uh, with especially bucolic kind of character to it. Sort of, I apply it to these, these uh, uh, places that are celebrated in the Mughal Empire in kind of a loose way, but coming from the discipline of comparative literature, I use the term more for its kind of symbolic valence than for its actual kind of reference to a specific space in, in the European imagination. Mm -hmm. So that it's not just Kashmir, but the idea of the empire as paradise, as the Mughal Empire, and any space um, within that empire could be likened to paradise. And you also seem to be suggesting ways in which it wasn't a paradise for some of these poets, those who are dying of dysentery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, others who are even complaining about the weather and the, you know, and even Babur famously yes. talked about the fruits that he missed yes. from Central Asia. Right. Um, but I, 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 could you maybe speak about the ways in which the Arcadia was not a paradise as well? Is that sure, yeah. of course. And, and, you know, any such constructions like Arcadia or, um, you know, ideal spaces, um, they are really part of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And you have one bad day and that place becomes hell <laughs> so that you have a parallel kind of, um, uh, you know, a story uh, during this period of Persian literature um, at the Mughal court of uh, many Iranian poets who were miserable um, in India because of various reasons. They were homesick. They didn't like the weather. They didn't find um, the right patron. Many of them made the long journey to India um, uh, and didn't succeed. Some succeeded very well. I mean, there was also actually um, a, a lot of rivalry in the expatriate Iranian community so that Iranian poets in India uh, usually complained about other Iranians, which I think is a very human story. Um, and, and that's why in my book, I um, uh, love these characters. I have, um, you know, vignettes about um, a, a lot of uh, figures, usually poets, because they all have a different story, whether they came from Isfahan or um, uh, from Gujarat or Kashmir or um, from any other place. I think now would be a great time maybe to ask you to read a selection. Salim Tehrani was a, um, one of the court poets um, um, of um, Shah Jahan, and uh, he was um, an expatriate Iranian poet um, who made his career at the Mughal court um, and wrote a few Masnavis, um, uh, one on Kashmir and then one on B um, Bengal as well, a Mughal um, battle in uh, 
in uh, in in the east um and in his kashmir um, masnavi he describes the um, difficult road to the valley um and he likens the night journey mirage of the prophet muhammad um and employs a multiple array of images to build up the scene راهی بر این چنین کوهی درشتی به هم پیچیده ما رو سنگ پشتی راهی پیچیده همچون کفل وسواس مشقت خیز چون ایام افلاس راهی بر پای دل زنجیر اندوه راهی همچون صدا پیچیده در کوه راهی از زلف خوبان پیچش افزون از این راه گشت کج رفتار گردون A path across such a harsh mountain, a snake and tortoise all twisted together, a winding path like lock of temptation, causing hardship in a time of penury, a path that shackles the heart like an ankle, a path like a sound echoing in the hills, a path like the curls of beautiful creatures. Fate is off course because of this path. Mm, That's beautiful. Yeah. It seems that Iran figures prominently in your conception of the Mughal Arcadia. Could you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's ironic that even as Mughal poets wanted to outrival Iran, the Iranian court um in terms of the production of poetry and the other arts um as well, it's precisely uh you know, a reconstructing uh, or or kind of uh you know uh, having a new iran in india that that's an obsession with them so that um uh, whether it's in the deccan or later in kashmir um uh, they have this phrase uh, uh, little iran iran is sagir or for abdul rahim khan khanan one of the important patrons of um both persian and um hindi poets uh he's referred to as um Iran Saz uh someone who's trying to m- make an Iran of you know a, a kind of uh, reconstruct the atmosphere of the majlis in Iran in India so yes Iran is very much kind of a central part of the poetic imagination um of this time which never really goes away i think in persian and urdu literature iran is always sort of the the you know the home of uh, beauty and poetry and um um all the sort of things that are cherished in the persianate um imagination but at this time because you really have so many uh, iranians um in the various courts in um the um north and in the south in the mogul and deccan territories um that um that iran is a living place it's a it's 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 not just part of the imagination but um um uh, indian patrons poets um they are um kind of seeing um iranians speak and live amongst them um and they're competing with them in some ways at least the poets are um so yes iran is uh, very important 
the way in which uh, I'm going to ask this question is using a term that the people themselves wouldn't have used, which is race. I'm curious about human difference in this period. You have so far given us a sense of what brings all of these poets together, the shared linguistic background, but you've also noted that the linguistic and cultural and regional specificity of the places where all these different poets and courtiers are coming from varied widely. I'm curious how the poets themselves are reflecting on the differences among them. So the kinds of testimonies of Indian-born poets about these Iranian poets coming in, how are they, if they are identifying with India, which you mentioned is kind of happening about Kashmir as well, specifically. I was actually um, surprised to find that there is use of race um, at this time in the sense that poets, um, Indian-born Persian poets, such as Akbar's poet laureate Fezi, um, he uses the term um, Hindi Nijad, so of, you know, Indian lineage, basically, or um, uh, but um, to contrast uh, himself to the Iranians, the, uh, who he called in it's sort of a not very flattering um, uh, term, uh, using a flat, not very flattering term, um, uh, the people who use the Kajmaj Sabon, uh, which probably refers to the, the twisted language, that their pronunciation was very different. Um, and we see this, um, these same terms are used almost um, half a century later by Munir, mm -hmm. who's the other important poet um, of Indian origin in this early period. There weren't too many. We only have two major poets, uh, Fezi and Munir. And, and Munir talks in the same way. And he probably has read Fezi's uh, preface to his Divan, in which um, Fezi talks about um, that, you know, he's surrounded by these brilliant um, uh, poets at court from Iran. Um, uh, but but he feels isolated. He feels alone as someone of uh, Hindi Nijad. Um, and, and, and that... Um, uh, situation doesn't really change for the next few decades, um, and it doesn't change until the late Shah Jahan period, um, when um, men of letters, whether historians or poets or um, um, other people um, uh, uh, that of Indian um, origin, um, they feel that they are in the majority, if not that they feel confident enough amongst the Iranians at court. Am I remembering correctly that he refers, Fezi refers to himself as dark-skinned? Uh, Munir, um, oh, Munir. Munir does, yes. Mm. So um, definitely Munir does. And and um, there is one painting about um, uh, a group of poets in um, uh, a, an assembly um, in the uh, one of the uh, pavilions of uh, Zafar Khan, a patron and poet himself in Kashmir, um, and we can easily identify that in the group of poets, most of them are of Iranian origin. You can tell from their um, facial sort of features, their clothes. Um, and then there is the one dark-skinned poet who is Munir. Um, and, and that's really, I think, what he was saying in his poetry, something that's picked up by the artist Bishandas in that painting as well. Could you talk a little bit about the social stratification of this world of poets, connoisseurs, writers, literatures? Um, because it seems like, just getting back to something that you'd said earlier, we talked about the Persianate um, as this sort of elite lingua franca, 
uh, in conjunction with other languages. And I think there's a tendency amongst historians and scholars of literature to think of it as Persian as sort of the senior courtly language. And there are these sort of vernacular courtly languages as well, like Braj and Hindavi. And of course, it's it's definitely not like that. But I, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how these different linguistic communities maybe interact with one another within the Arcadia. And if you could also comment maybe later about different classes of writers, um, because you speak about some sort of urban figures, uh, the bakal and the kind of artisan, um, sort of the nobleman, the prince, they, they all sort of figure in the Arcadia. And I guess this also gets back to the genre that you started out with, the Shaharashub genre, right. which has these <laughs> yeah. kind of tropes of different people in the city. In some ways, the you know the uh, to answer this question, one has to go back to the late Timurid court in Herat. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where again the Shaharashub genre um, uh, becomes um, what we know um, in the early modern period. Sherashu uh, before that was shorter poems that were not connected to a city necessarily. But also, um, this is something that scholars have written about, like Paul Lezensky, um, how Persian spread, um, the widespread, um, not just um, uh, the, the knowledge of Persian, because in the uh, Iranian and Central Asian lands, there were always, of course, there was, you know, much sort of a greater knowledge of Persian even among multilingual communities. But Persian poetry being practiced at every level of society. So the bakal and all these, um, you know, the, the baker and, the, you know, everybody is writing verses. If you look at the Tazkiras of the early period, and in the uh, the early Mughal period, you know, up till the early Akbar period, um, you see that it's it's still um, a kind of uh, very similar to Timurid literary culture, uh, because there are a lot of po- the poets that Babur brings with him and who continue under um, and then Humayun, you know, when he leaves and brings back poets and artists and then. Um, and these poets who survive until the early Akbar period, they are from very diverse background. They are more from Central Asia. So it's Timurid, you know, it's a very Timurid um, culture um, there in, in how they are producing literature in the majlis, how it's been enacted and poetry is being performed. Um, the Iranians start to come into the scene in the 1580s, and, and there's they kind of, um, uh, they become the majority. They, they are the... Uh, you know, arbiters of kind of poetic um, usage of um, of how kind of poetic majlises work um, at the Mughal court. Um, so, so this changes the character um, of um, uh, how Persian is used and um, and poetry is produced and performed. I would say that Persian is an elite language at this time because now suddenly you have you have to be a native speaker to um to you know um, be uh, the best poet um although we have as i said very few uh, exceptions people like fezi almost the only one in the early um uh, kind of period um who is a non native speaker and again i have to say you know what is a native speaker at that time mm-hmm. because when people spoke multiple languages you know i'm sure fezi could converse in persian so doesn't mean you know he's not a native speaker, but it's just that um, uh, 
people who you know directly came from Iranian speaking kind of lands and and places especially like Shiraz and Mazandaran and Mashhad and these places were very important in the Persian um and the poetic imagination um it meant something um that that you were from those places so they were also um uh, absolutely that they were kind of vernacular um spheres of um poet take production and probably multilingual spheres there were mogul courtiers who could enjoy poetry in persian and braj or hindvi at the same time um and turki you know chagatai too um at various points at least in the early decades um and then there were probably exclusively um either persian or vernacular spaces um as well um and um i think another way to look at this is um the sheer amount of literature that was produced in persian um and and i don't have any numbers here to throw around because you know uh, for persian or for um uh, hindvi or for other sanskrit and other lang- mughal languages um we don't really um still know the the kind of the number of manuscripts and and how many works were produced in different genres whether historical or poetic but i would still say that the sheer number of works um of uh, a belle lettre nature in poetry divans etc they were far greater it was far greater than in other languages so that even if persian was obviously not the most kind of um you know important um language at the mogul court it just had a very sort of a uh, heavy presence there uh, both because of you know its usage and prestige but because it's the, the volume of um poetry that's being produced i mean some of these um divans are sort of massive you know and we haven't even begun to um kind of really find things in them that are of interest to us We started out the conversation by talking about Persian literature broadly and we've sort of moved into this specific discussion of poetry and verse and you know we've talked about poets as people who move but perhaps it's worth uh, mentioning a little bit more about why poetry enabled mobility enabled these people to seek positions what was the specific role of poetry in the court and what was its value absolutely and that goes back to some of the things that you were asking navina yeah poetry was you know something and persian poetry especially was something that got you a job basically at this time whether in the administration um because everyone wrote poetry even if you were a secretary and you do write a letter you had to know some verses and um sprinkle your prose with kind of um quotations from the classical poets um if not the contemporary ones so poetry was um you know the way as in my book i say english is in today's world that people you know sort of go to all corners of the world to teach english and uh, um especially if they're native speakers and in in some ways um persian did work that way it did stop being an elite language i think at some point or 
um, if um, I, I guess some would argue that um, there was a lot of poetic production outside of court. Of course, there were Sufi poets who, um, you know, and um, there were poets um, in um, regional kind of centers and kasbas who were using Persian. We, we know that, um, that it, it was widespread. Um, but I would still sort of um, um, uh, stand by my statement that um, it, it was, you know, an elite language. It became widespread, and I think in the later period, in the sort of post-Arcadia period, that is when Persian comes closest to being a vernacular in South Asia, uh, when, uh, you know, uh, lots of communities at various levels, at social levels, and the geographic spread as well, that Persian starts being used um, uh, for all kinds of writing, and no one is really judging you for it. So I think that self-consciousness from the early period is gone. You do have in the 18th century the the kind of the, uh, you know, with uh, figures like Khane Arzu, debates about the usage of Persian among the literati, but those are kind of, you know, uh, uh, poetic circles. It, it doesn't stop um, people from, you know, all sort of walks of life in all kinds of places using Persian so that, you know, you from the smallest places, you know, I, I know from my um, kind of personal experience that in Gujarat that Persian was used um, all the way until the 19th century um maybe these people were not writing the greatest poetry but they were using persian as a language for all kinds of communication just to follow up on uh shirin's question about poetry and um, its sort of currency and and how it's used in this uh, this context of the arcadia um what does it enable uh, I'm also thinking about the fact that you talk a lot about Masnavis, uh, yes. if I'm not mistaken. And I Absolutely. think they, they figure quite prominently in the story that you're tracing. Could you talk a little bit about what's going on with the Masnavi as a form during this period? Do you see parallels in other contexts outside Mughal Arcadia? As you know, Masnavi is uh, you know, a, a form of poetry and usually used for um, love stories or Sufi um, narratives and Rumi's Masnavi is the Masnavi. Um, but what is interesting about the Masnavi in the early modern period is that um, uh, traditionally what poets did um, was to uh, write um, Masnavis um, uh, in imitation of the the two greatest masters, uh, Nizami and Ami Khusro, um, and their um, Masnavis on famous lovers such as uh, Shirin Farhad, Khusro Shirin, um, uh, depends on how you, you see which pair of lovers, uh, and Leila Majnoon or Leili Majnoon and others. Um, so that continued um, all the way down to you know uh, the 19th century. But um, what is uh, amazing is that during the kind of the period that I deal with the Arcadia, uh, Mughal Ar in Mughal Arcadia, you also have, um, um, on the one hand, Masnavis about place that I talk about. So the ones I mentioned, Masnavis on Kashmir, on Bengal, etc., on uh, um, uh, different uh, uh, places that are celebrated in the empire. 
but also um, a new interest on um, uh, local topics, if you will, um, so that um, not drawing on traditional uh, Perso-Islamic kind of stories and the, uh, uh, for inspiration, but looking at the world around um, them. And po so poets like Noe, especially, is one of an early poet, writes a, a Masnavi on Sati, mm -hmm. uh, Suzo Godaz, which was a big hit in the um, uh, 17th century, and especially in Safavid Iran. Um, I, I discussed that. Um, and um, also Fezi's Masnavi on Nal Daman, based on the Sanskrit story of Nal, Nala and Damianti, um, uh, which is, of course, part of a larger, um, uh, you know, Mughal project of translation and interest in um, Indic tradition. But this is also something uh, from a comparative Persianate um, perspective. I'm very interested in how this uh, developed in Ottoman Turkish literary culture. Um, when did Ottoman poets start writing Masnavis not about Khosrow and Shirin or Bisen Ramin and Leila and Machnun, but about local um, sort of stories or, or drawing on kind of, um, you know, um, their own tradition rather than, um, and a tradition that's from the here and now. That's what I think, at least in the Mughal cases, important because these Masnavis are about, you know, uh, they start off with this trope that why should we go back to these old stories? They're stale, you know, but let's look at our world around us and we find, we'll find plenty of stories. And, and this then, I think, in the post-Arcadia period just sort of, um, I think, takes on a life of its own, that you have um, lots of translations, um, for instance, of um, Hindvi um, love stories into Masnavi form. So um, things like, you know, the stories of um, Manohar and Madhumalti and uh, things like that, and Padmavat and all these become Masnavis in the 17th and then 18th centuries. Um, but the Masnavi was where a lot of innovation in literary sort of, uh, um, you know, the kind of uh, literary culture was taking place. The Vlachas Digarda Kashmir, Khare Anjas Kule Damangir. خار را نیست در آنجا جای شکوفت گل همه نقش پای گاه یک گل به هزاران رنگ است گاه هزاران نهر از آهنگ است گاه هزاران گل و با هم یک رنگ من و بلبل هم از این هم آهنگ آب او داروی هر درد دل there is another spot in Kashmir where the thorns are roses to be gathered. There is no room for thorns there. Every footprint blossoms into a flower. Here is a flower with a thousand colors. There a thousand singing streams. A thousand flowers and together one hue. The nightingale and I are in tune about this. Its water is the cure for every heart's pain. Drink it and forgive your mother's milk. So um, as I had mentioned, uh, 
by Shah Jahan's time, Kashmir was um, sort of uh, a, a re- an important um, um, spot for Sufis, and especially of the Qadiri order. Um, and Shah Jahan and his children, um, um, Darashiko and uh, Jahanara, were disciples of the um, the peer there, um, Mullah Shah, who was originally from Badakhshan in Central Asia. Um, and Mullah Shah was a poet himself. He had made Kashmir his home. And, and to me, it was interesting, even though I did not focus on um, um, the Sufi literature of this age, uh, but because I was uh, uh, dealing with poems about Kashmir, we see that it was not just court poets who are celebrating Kashmir and Mughal Arcadia, but that Mullah Shah also um, sort of um, joins in the fad. Um, and, and it definitely is you know, Mullah Shah who's read the Kashmir poems of court poets like Khalib and Talib and then writes his own Masnavi. Um, about the place that he inhabits. I really liked what you said earlier about Indo-Persian, and I'm curious to know when you think Indo-Persian really becomes a, a tangible thing. Um, is it a form? Is it a genre? Is it a language? Is it a heuristic? What is it? Um, and uh, yeah, could you speak a little bit more about what you mean by Indo-Persian? Because I think you said that you've come to a, a newer kind of understanding of what it means. Well, I'm still working that out for myself, uh, a kind of a new understanding of what Indo-Persian is and how we use the term. And partly because the ter- you know the term Persianate has become very fashionable, and and I don't mean to imply um, by fashionable that it's it's sort of it's here now and it will go away. I think it's 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 here to stay, and it's it's used in many nuanced ways. There have been you know debates about how it should be used, and of course, it depends on um, when you are talking about and where. You know, Persian societies are different. Um, whereas Indo-Persian is about Persian in the subcontinent. So yes, one could say it's true that any Persian poetry produced in the subcontinent or about um, Indian life or themes could be called Indo-Persian. And that's how um, uh, scholars in India have used the term, such as um, uh, Professor Waris Kirmani of Alikar. What I've started to think, uh, as I um, mentioned earlier, is that perhaps we can think of a moment when um, Persianate becomes Indo-Persian and doesn't lose all of its Persianateness, but it's it's not Persianate in the transnational sense. But you know, Indo-Persian is local. It's also Persianate can also be local, but it's also translocal at the same time. Um, uh, whereas Indo-Persian is much more sort of um, when, um, uh, say, a literary text or a chronicle, uh, it, it may reach odd, wider audiences, but the author did not have that in mind. Uh, his audience, his or her, I'm, I mean, I wish we, there were more hers um, <laughs> in the Persian tradition, uh, but uh, right, the, 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 the historian or poet's audience is more local. Um, they speak 
um, in a language that they assume is understood. The way that, you know, Indian English, we pepper Indian English with um, all kinds of words from um, our languages, um, you know, non-English languages. Um, and that started happening much more. It was already happening in the 17th century, but more for technical terms like um, uh, names of trees and local products, etc. But using words um, that that don't need to be glossed or explained, you know. I think maybe that's uh, Indo-Persian, and um, maybe we need a conference on this subject. In a, in a late 18th century text that I was looking at recently, um, the writer uses the term Nahon Kardan mm-hmm. <laughs> to take a bath. <laughs> That's right. Which, yeah, Nahana, mm-hmm. which I thought was amazing. Oh, I just got it. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think that it's also, um, uh, it, it, it makes sense that this is happening when Urdu is coming into its own, right? Um uh, the the origins of sort of the um, uh, Urdu literary culture um, in the period I'm dealing with, it's almost non-existent. It's there in its Hindi form because, you know, these languages um, um, are, are part of a continuum, really. But the way that we know as classical Urdu, I'm sure some form of it was spoken in the 17th century. But we almost have no evidence of this. But when from the late 17th in the 18th century you start seeing sort of a nascent um, Urdu literary culture it's it's rival is Persian and it's Indo-Persian you know and um, and I think that's uh, it's a new phase in in in, in um, literary culture Persianate literary culture in India and that's the what I would say it happens after the post Arcadia um, when this um, the transnational character um, of this literary culture um, um, is uh, it, it shifts in a major way and kind of Safavid poets no longer um, either desire to come to um, India for employment. Some still do, they keep coming, but it, it's not a brain drain anymore. And in fact, uh, the, the Iranians after the Battle of Kandahar as I sort of in in my work, uh, I mark as a, a symbolic moment in uh, Mughal Safavid relations, is um, that Iranians they regain confidence as being the uh, the center of um, Persian literary production, and they're not seeing the best poets and men of letters um, being drawn to other courts, whether in India or the Ottoman court, um, and 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 that's when. Um, yeah, it's it. It's the end of Arcadia. I'm sure other listeners besides myself are curious about what comes after this project. Um, well, there are a number of things sort of simmering, but one of um, a really pet project of mine would be um, comparative Persianate um, sort of studies of literary cultures. And um, so I attempted to do that here. I gesture towards it in this book. Uh, but it's really focused on the Mughal court. But how do you incorporate um, the Deccan court's production in vernacular languages? Um, and I'm very interested in Turkish, both Chagata and Ottoman, and I've been dabbling in it for the last two years. But um, alas, I may never master those languages to do a proper comparative study, but it's a dream. 
maybe collaboration or you know like it's absolutely it's a wonderful absolutely. project i think it um in my field as well in the history of science people are really thinking more about um the necessity of collaborating with people who study different regions especially in the kind of context where those networks are already trans-regional and uh in order to be able to really study the um kind of uh, as you say transnational or translocal in addition to the local you need right. to have many people who know those local contexts so well whatever form it takes we really look forward to it thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thanks Anil. absolutely it was a pleasure to talk to you great um listeners who are interested in reading more about this topic can go to our website www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com where professor sharma has kindly provided us with a bibliography and some images 